there never was a sense of fret or anxiety. And it wasn't something that was just to put on when um, you saw him, he hid it, and then later on others saw the reality because I knew him for 25-plus years, and I saw him in many different circumstances and in many different situations, and the reality was that I could truly say that I never saw him worry about anything, not even once. Now, I don't envy many, many things that people have, but that's one particular thing that, that I sort of envy. You probably sort of envy that too. That's one side where you never worry about anything or you have Mr. Dudovich on the other side where you worry to the degree that you do some very unusual things in order to protect yourself. Most of us are somewhere in the middle of that category. I don't know where you are on that graded scale today. Maybe you're down here closer to the no worry or you're way over here to the extreme anxiety. I don't know where you are today. But I want you to understand that in one of the most beloved passages of the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us an extended discussion about the subject of worry. Most of our worries are about the future. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. They're about the future, what's coming, what might happen, what if, all of the what ifs of life. I have walked the floor many nights, wrung my hands many times over the what ifs of tomorrow or a week from tomorrow or a month from tomorrow. And many of you have done the same thing. And yet Jesus comes in the verses that I've had you to turn to and I'm going to point you to. Jesus comes in three times in 10 verses. Jesus says, don't worry. Notice verse 25. Therefore, I say to you, do not worry. That's a command. He comes in verse 31 of that same chapter. He says, therefore, do not worry. And then he says it again in verse 34. Therefore, do not worry. Let me ask you a question. You think Jesus doesn't want us to worry? He knows we're human. He knows we're frail. He knows we have our faults and our failings. He knows that this is a reality, or he would not have addressed himself to it. He knows it's a reality that we have to deal with in our lives at times, but he says to us, I don't want you to worry. And in the words that he's given us in these 10 verses, he's told us some things that will help us to deal with this subject of our worries. Actually, the word worry is found here six times in these 10 verses. You'll want to notice them each time you find them. I just read three of them to you, but it's found three other times because this entire section, these 10 verses are all about Jesus speaking to the subject of worry in the most famous sermon that Jesus delivered, the Sermon on the Mount. In this one, one of the most beloved sections of the sermon where he talks about this subject, six times Jesus talks about worry and he says, I don't want you to worry. So how is that going to happen? How are we going to work that out in our lives? What, what is Jesus going to do for us to help us understand how not to worry? Well, if you're making notes, you want to write down these three things. There is something to remember here in these verses. There is something to remember here, and that is our provider. There is something to remember here, our provider, and providers with a capital P, our God. Then secondly, there is something to rearrange here in these verses. There's something to rearrange here, and that is our priorities. And then thirdly, there is something to recover here, and that is our perspective. There is something to recover here, our perspective. Would any of you like a little bit of help with worry? Not from me. I'm not the expert. 
So look past me and look to the words of Jesus, okay? Look to the words of Jesus, but would you like to have a little bit of help with worry? Would you like to have a little bit of instruction about how you can deal with the worries? Well, first of all, he says there's something to remember here about our provider. And what Jesus does from verse 25 to verse 32 is Jesus takes the argument, first of all, from the greater to the lesser, and then he turns it around and takes the argument from the lesser to the greater, all of which is to make the point that he is our provider. Notice, if you will, verse 25, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you shall put on. Now here's from the greater to the lesser. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? In other words, he says, in essence, if God has given us life and if God has given to us a body, if that is in his sovereignty and in his plan to do such a thing, isn't it true then that God, who is our provider, will maintain that body, that God will maintain that life by giving us food and clothing and things to drink? He is, after all, our provider, and if that's the greater of the things, our life and our body, don't you think that if he's given us those things, then he's going to give us the rest of the things that we need. Hear the word, the things that we need to sustain life. And Jesus begins his argument from the greater to the lesser, but then he moves his argument from the lesser to the greater, and he goes out into, into nature, and he uses nature as his illustration of how God is our provider. Notice, he picks it up in verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. I love the birds of the air, don't you? You know, when the winter comes, the birds fly south. They move away. Many of them move away to get as far from the cold as possible. The leaves are all off of the trees except for the evergreens. The leaves are all off of the trees. There's no singing of any birds. You don't see birds sitting in the trees like you normally would see them. You don't hear them in the early morning hours, but then the winter seems to pass. You get toward the end of winter, and you look out your window, and suddenly on that barren tree out front, you see a beautiful bird perched on that tree limb. I saw that just a few weeks ago. I saw a beautiful red-breasted bird that was on the tree, barren tree, right outside the window of our our, of our living room, right out front of our house. And I took a picture. I got my camera. This is so pretty on that barren tree, this beautiful red bird. Absolutely gorgeous. And then as you continue, what happens? More and more birds begin to show up, and you begin to hear them. And, and then by the time spring gets here, they're singing in the trees. Matter of fact, they're singing early in the morning and waking you up in the trees, right? But there's nothing more beautiful than the birds that God has created I mean, look at the birds of the air, Jesus says, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a bird sitting in your tree, perched, I should say, is the right way to say it, but my southern way of saying sitting in the tree, just hang with me, would you? Have you ever seen a, a bird perched in one of your trees that has an ulcer because it's been worrying about where the next meal is going to come from? Never happens, does it? Birds don't sow the seeds. Birds don't harvest the results of that crop. Birds don't store up 
put everything in storage so that when a bad day comes, they got plenty left over. Birds don't do any of those things, do they? That doesn't mean that birds don't work, right? Birds have to go and search for their food. They have to dig up their food sometimes. The little baby birds in the nest, they have to be fed, and the mother bird has to go find the worm and bring the worm and put it in the birds, the baby bird's mouth. But the fact of the matter is, that bird doesn't have any ulcers. It's not worrying whatsoever about where the meal's going to come from. Did we sow enough seed? What if there's a drought and the seed doesn't grow? We don't have any produce from the seed. And where am I going to store it when I get it all done? Where am I going to put all this in case there's a rainy day one day and I can't get out to get food for my, my little baby birds? Birds don't do that. Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Now listen, now he moves from the lesser to the greater. If God takes care of the birds, are you not of more, circle the two words, more value than they? <laughs> now I know that to some people, some ecologists, birds are more important than humans. I understand that. They, they're completely out of balance with life. They have no common sense whatsoever. But Jesus says, look at the birds. None of them have ulcers over where their next meal is coming from or whether they're going to, be, going to be clothed or not or whether they're going to have food in the bad times or the difficult times. The Heavenly Father feeds them. He takes care of them. Aren't you of more value than the birds? Aren't you thankful that you're of more value to your God in heaven? Circle those words, more value. You are more valuable than even those birds, and God provides for the birds. Then he moves to another question. Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? The Greek here can be translated in two different ways, one to refer to stature, the height, or the other to the length of your life. Some of your translations will reflect that. If you have a study Bible, you probably have a note that makes a, you know, a marginal note about that. I mean, you can worry all you want, but is that going to cause you to grow an inch? Or if he's talking about the length of our lives, not the height that we grow, but the length of our lives, if he's talking about the length of our lives, you, you can worry as long as you want, but you can't extend your life by worrying. Actually, you can shorten your life by worrying, right? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. He's gone from the greater to the lesser, your life and your body are more important than food and clothing and water. God's promised to provide those things. But then he moves from the lesser to the greater, and he goes out into nature and says, listen, if God takes care of the birds, you're of more value than the birds. I mean, you can't worry yourself into being a taller person than you are or worry yourself into a longer life than God's going to give you. And then he moves to another aspect of nature, verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. He probably wasn't talking about the lilies like you and I think of lilies. This particular word likely refers to the wildflowers. This sermon was given on... Uh, this mountain, probably northwest, just a little northwest of the Sea of Galilee is the traditional spot. There's a church built over the place where supposedly Jesus delivered this famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, this, this sermon that he's, we're reading from this morning. 
And as you look down, you can see Capernaum and you can see some of the Sea of Galilee. The wind would blow down over that mountain, blow down toward the sea, down toward Capernaum. It would pick up his voice and it would carry it to all of those that were listening to him as he's delivering the message. And as he looks out, he sees these grass-covered hillsides. And what does he see mixed in with the grass-covered hillsides? He sees all of these beautiful wildflowers that are growing. Have you seen any of those wildflowers that are just gorgeous to see? I'm not talking about weeds. I'm talking about the wildflowers. I've seen some states that I've driven through, and I would be getting on the interstate or off the interstate, or I'd be riding by one of those entrances or exits, and they've taken that area that belongs to the state, and they've planted it in wildflowers, and there's just thousands of those wildflowers that are growing up, and all of the beauty of those wildflowers, and not a one of them was worried about how pretty they were or how tall they were going to be or even how long they were going to last. And yet Solomon, who was the richest man of his day, couldn't dress as beautifully as those flowers could dress. And you will agree, won't you? You've been to the people's houses that keep the manicured gardens, and you you see all the beautiful flowers, and you look at them, and there is nothing that could be any more beautiful, is there? than the beauty of those flowers, but those flowers are of lesser value, right, than human life, than your life. Jesus continues, and he says, verse 30, Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which which today is and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not, circle these next two words, much more clothe you, Arguing from the lesser to the greater, oh, you of little faith. Five times you find that phrase in the Gospels. Four of them are here in the Gospel of Matthew. One of them is in the Gospel of Luke. It literally means little faith. He he comes and he rebukes them and he says, listen, I, I am your provider. I take care of the birds. I take care of these beautiful flowers. By the way, uh, these wildflowers, they have work to do, don't they? They start out as a seed, but they have to push up through the ground. They have to stand up to the sky to reach out to the sun, and their roots have to go down into the ground. He's not talking here about being idle or being lazy or being indifferent as if we can just wait for God to drop the worms in our mouth. But he's reminding us that that, that our God is our provider. He is the one who has promised to take care of us. And when we don't believe that, the consequence is that we find ourselves churning within and turning within, worried, worried, and anxious. I've been there. You've been there probably. He continues, verse 32, he says, For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Do you hear what he's saying? The Gentiles who don't know God, they don't know the provider. They don't know the one who places greater value on people than on plants, greater value on lives than he does on the animal kingdom. He says the Gentiles don't know this God. They don't know who this God is. They don't understand anything about this God. They're the ones that are focused on tomorrow. They're the ones that are focused on, you know, am I going to have enough? And is it going to be sufficient? And am I going to go hungry? And will I have clothes for my back? They're the ones that are worried about it. They don't know God. But you know God. You know God. Amen? You, You know God. 
And God is our provider. If he feeds the birds, he'll feed you. If he clothes the lilies of the field, the flowers of the field, he'll clothe you. If there's some need that you have in your life, God will take care of you. You are his child. Don't be looking to those things and worrying about those things like the Gentiles do. And this next phrase I have highlighted in my Bible in the brightest pink marker I could get. For your heavenly Father knows. I love that. Sometimes I wonder if he knows. And I have to go back and remind myself, he knows. Lord, I don't know where my meal's coming from. He knows. I don't know where my next set of clothing are coming from. He, he knows. I don't know whether I'll have another breath. He knows. I, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to endure. He knows. He knows exactly where we are. You know, one of the most frustrating things to me is picking up a phone and calling a company and getting uh, a computerized answer. And then they tell you, you've got to choose what language you want. And then once you get to the language you want, then you've got to choose out of several different options. Are you calling for this, 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 or this? And then once you choose what it is that you're calling for, then you get to another set of options, and you have to choose another number on the dial of the phone. I say the dial of the phone. The young people have no idea what that even is. <laughs> I have to choose another number on the phone to push until finally, finally, you get to somebody who you can't hardly understand when they're speaking. And you have to ask them, I did this this past week, have to ask, or two weeks ago, had to ask them two or three times, could you say that again, please? Could you please say that again? I'm so sorry, I just don't understand. Please say that again. I, I know I'm not hearing well. And you wonder, you know, this company you spent all this money with, do they even care? Can I tell you, God cares. He knows. He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly where you are in your life. He knows exactly what's going on. Your God knows there are some things that you have to remember here, and that is there is something, I should say, you have to remember here, and that is you have a provider. You have a God who's promised to meet your needs. Think about the children of Israel. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert because of their unbelief, their dis disobedience to God. But you know what God did for them? Every morning, he gave them manna, and every evening, he gave, he gave them meat. Every morning. It fascinates me, the manna. I still believe the manna had to have been my mother's chocolate chip cookies. You could sustain life on those for 40 years. But the manna would fall during the night while they were sleeping, and they would go out in the morning, and they would gather up enough for that day alone. They couldn't gather enough for the next day. Couldn't store up, you know, like we do. We like to store up. Couldn't store up because whatever wasn't eaten that day would become worm-infested. It would begin to smell. It would become rotten. The only day they could have for two days was the day of Friday, and on Friday, they would gather enough for the Sabbath day on Saturday, and God caused it to be sustained for the two days because you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. But when it came back to Sunday, you, every day, Monday through Thursday, you gathered enough for that day and that day alone. And they were reminded over and over and over again by the manna in the morning and the meat in the evening, who is our provider? God is our provider. 
God is the one who takes care of us. Matter of fact, their clothes. You remember those stories about their clothes during that 40 years? Ladies, you would be absolutely, you'd, you'd absolutely blow your minds. They never had to go find a new dress or a new pair of shoes. God calls them to last the entirety of the time that they were out there until that bracket of 20 and over died away and the new generation came up and was ready to go into the promised land. And when they went into the promised land, do you remember what it says? It flows. It flows with milk and honey. It means it's prosperous everywhere. God provides, doesn't he? As a matter of fact, when you find God not providing for Israel, it's because Israel's in unbelief and in sin. Do you know that? God sends them fam famine. God sends them uh, pestilence of some kind, or God will send the, the locusts to destroy the crop, or, or God will send some kind of a judgment and take away the necessities in order to get their attention, to make them pay attention. Haven't you wondered over the last few weeks, the last few months, if maybe God's not doing that in America? There's something to remember here, our provider. And by the way, in what is the most famous prayer ever prayed, the, it's not commonly called the Lord's Prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer. It's the example prayer, if you will. How did he teach his disciples to pray? In verse 11, he said, give us this day our daily bread. Why do you pray to God for that? Because God's your provider. And what are you asking for? Enough for 10 weeks, 10 months? You ask him for enough for today. Because if God provides for the lilies of the field and clothes them and all, all this beauty, and, and God provides for the birds, gives them the water and the food that they need, God is our provider. And sometimes we just have to stop and remember that he is our provider. But then there is something to rearrange here. And that's our priorities. In verse 33, he tells you the opposite. He says, but, here's the adversative. Here's the other side of that. You don't worry about these things that God's pro promised he would provide for you. Didn't God say he would provide all of our need? How? According to what, church? His riches in glory. Isn't that good news? My riches are running out sometimes. God's riches never run out. But... Instead of worrying about all these things, he says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And what a promise that is. The kingdom of God is the rule of God over our lives. There is going to be the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God on earth. When Jesus will reign over all of the affairs of mankind, everybody will answer to him. He will rule over mankind. That's still an eschatological event. That's still a, a future event that's yet to occur. But can I tell you, we're supposed to be living our lives every day in letting God reign over our lives. And this righteousness isn't your righteousness. This righteousness is his righteousness. He talks about righteousness in chapter 5, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, chapter 5, verse 20. All of that has to do with living out the righteousness of Jesus Christ in this world. In other words, God demands my undivided attention. And when he has my undivided attention, he promises to take care of my necessities. Oh, 
Some of the worry that we have is because we have our priorities out of place. When we have our priorities in place, we'll pursue righteousness of life in total submission to God and in total submission to his will. We will put God's interests first above everything else. As a matter of fact, the word first here, it's not talking about first in chronology. It's talking about first in importance. First in chronology would mean this. I can come to church today and I'm done for the week. I can get up and read my Bible and I can pray in the morning time, the early morning hour, and I'm done for the day. I got it in my chronology first. When he says here that we want the rule of God over our lives, we want to be living and seeking after the Christ-likeness, the Christ-righteousness of life, he's saying to us, this is the most important thing in life, and it permeates every part of your life, your business life, your family life, your recreational life, every aspect of your life. You want the Lord ruling over you. You want to be so surrendered to him, seeking to live as he would have you to live, because the result, or result of that is God says, I'll, I'll take care of you. All, you circle that little word, all. All these things. You know, all those necessities that the birds don't worry about, the flowers don't worry about, all of those things. God says, I'll take care of them. Can I just tell you that Mary and I have found that on many occasions? Matter of fact, recently, I didn't talk to her about this, but recently I stopped and I thought back over our ministry lives. You know, I've been here 38 years, almost 39 years. And I was a youth pastor for almost five years before that while I was working on my education. And do you know that in almost 44, or almost, well, going on 45 years, I'll just round it up. Going on 45 years, Mary and I have never gone without. I don't know if you know this or not, but you don't necessarily go into the ministry to get rich. I don't know if you figured that out. You don't, you don't go into the ministry to, to get rich. When I was a youth pastor, I made $5,000 a year. That's what I made. And there were times when we wondered how God would provide because our children were in Christian school and we were paying them through Christian school and then they wanted to go to Christian college and we put them both through Christian college. Of course, they worked at the college age to help. How did we do that? How did we make all those trips to visit our children when they were off at college studying for their career and studying the Bible? How did that all happen? I'll I, I be honest with you. I don't know. Can you explain it, sweetheart? I, I can't explain it. I just know that every time the need was represented, God always met the need. God always provided the need. I worried about it sometimes. I was anxious about it sometimes. I, I wasn't, I'm not your example here because I had times of, you know, the, the church's money is, I mean, we're right at the breaking even part and I, I don't know, are, are we going to make it or not? And, you know, here we sit on properties we don't owe anything for. Because God is not only our priority, God expects our priorities to be set right. And the only thing I can say is that 
We were living for God and seeking God with all of our hearts, as imperfect as it was. We wanted God more than we wanted anything else, and we wanted God's church to be blessed and to move forward and for God's people to know they were loved and they were being taught the word more than anything else and God provided. Can I just put this in simple terms? If your life's not fully committed to Christ and you're not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then you're headed for a life filled with worry and confusion and turmoil. If you serve God only when you want to serve God, if you come to worship services and life groups and serve through the church only when you feel like it, if you give when it's convenient and tip rather than tithe, if you follow God when the chips are down but forsake him when things are good, and if you crave what you want, what you want more than what God wants, then you can't put your head on the pillow at night knowing that God's going to take care of you. This is a conditional phrase. But... Seek first the kingdom of God. If you don't do that, you, you don't have the promise. There's something here to remember, our provider. There's something here to rearrange our priorities. You know, I have to do this. I have to, sure, you have to do this. I have to stop periodically and say, mm, I got to get some things rearranged here. But then thirdly, there's something to recover here, and that's our perspective. He says, verse 34, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I don't know if you understand what he's saying here, but in essence what he's telling you is don't borrow trouble from tomorrow. Take care of what you've got to take care of today. Do you know most of the worries we have to deal with are worries about things tomorrow, things that you have no control over, things that you have no, you can have no bearing on at this moment. Worry can't produce a better tomorrow, and it can't change yesterday, but it can certainly spoil a perfectly good day today. And that's what he's saying. He's saying tomorrow, God will give you the grace to deal with whatever it is you have to deal with tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't borrow from tomorrow's trouble. Then you double today's trouble and you do nothing to help tomorrow's. Take the, take the help and the grace that God gives you today and do whatever it is you have to do and take care of whatever it is you have to take care of. And in essence, he says, live in the moment. Live in the day. Don't worry about a day or two days or ten days or a month or a year down the road? Again, I have failed at this many times, succeeded on occasion. A statistician began keeping track of what people worried about. He found that 40% of the things people worried about were things that never happened. 30% of the things are going to happen, and they couldn't change them and couldn't do anything about them. 12% of the things they worried about were just other people's opinions. 10% of the things they worried about were needless health worries. And 8% of the things they worried about were pretty miscellaneous worries, just, you know, common, ordinary kind of things. And the conclusion he made was that half of the things we worry about never happen, and the other half will happen anyway, and you can't stop it. And the point? Why worry? I'm not there yet. Probably some of you aren't there yet. My deacon friend, I'm, I'm envious. <laughs> I, I tried to rub up against him. I thought maybe it would rub off on me, spend time with him. 
Don't borrow from tomorrow's trouble. You know what happens tomorrow? God meets you tomorrow, and God helps you with your tomorrow. I say that to people who've lost a loved one. You know, if you start thinking about tomorrow or a week from tomorrow or a year from tomorrow or 10 years from tomorrow, you'll live in anxiety and you'll live in worry. Your life will be in turmoil all the time. You just have to take care of today. And you know what? God has enough grace to meet you today. And when you get to tomorrow, God will have enough grace to meet you tomorrow. Amen? Amen. Max Licato said, I don't know what, it, uh, what somebody said to Max Licato. I don't know what I'll do if my husband dies. He responded, you will when the time comes. When my children leave the house, I don't think that I can take it. It won't be easy, but strength will arrive. Here it comes. When the time comes. The key is, he says, meet today's problems with today's strength. Don't start tackling tomorrow's problems until tomorrow. You don't have, to, you don't have tomorrow's strength yet. You simply have enough for today. The key to overcoming worry is to learn how to utilize God's strength to accomplish what is set before us today because today's accomplishment is tomorrow's lesson. Tomorrow you get there and you say, you know what, I remember how God took care of me over here and how God resolved all this and how some of this I worried about never took place anyway. So you know what? God's going to meet me right here. God's going to take care of me right here. Anybody worried today? Anybody fretting? You want to go over in a corner somewhere? I've seen people do this, not literally put a bag over their heads, but live in such fear and such anxiety and such worry. Am I in, I'm in the dark. <laughs> live in such fear and such anxiety. It's like going over to the corner of a room. You got all the hand sanitizer and all the pockets you got. You got an N95, you got a face mask. And then when you get over as far away from people as you can possibly get, you get inside a bag. Don't you think God knows where you are and God knows what you need? Don't you think God can take care of you? I want you to think about one verse as we close. I want you to think about what he said in 1 Peter, casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. I heard about a lady that was walking down the street one day. She had two big bags of groceries. She was carrying them. She was jostling them. She was struggling with them. She was just trying. And so a man pulled up beside her and said, ma'am, would you like a ride to your house? I see how hard it is for you to carry these groceries. And she looked inside. She trusted the man. And she said, sure, thank you. She got inside the car and sat down in the car. And off they go toward her house. And he looks over and he says, ma'am, wouldn't you like to sit those groceries down? And she says, oh, no, you were so nice to put me in your car. I'll just hold on to the groceries. You get the point? We go to God and we say, okay, God, I like the ride to heaven, but I'm going to hold on to all of these things that I can spill rather than saying, God, I can't handle it. I'm just going to give it to you.